Hello, everyone. We have been so excited by the growth our podcast has experienced since its launch. The support we've received has been incredible, and we want to take a moment to thank you all and ask a small favor of you. We produce every aspect of this show ourselves during the small downtime we have from our day jobs. We ask that you take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. The more listeners that do this, the more exposure we get, allowing our audience to grow. The more we grow, the more time and energy we can invest in maintaining and improving the production. We love hearing from you, and we thank you in advance for supporting the show's growth. Now go enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. What's up, Shadi? Hello. <laughs> so we're doing another shorty today, huh? We're doing another shorty. What are you going to hit me with? I am going to hit you with the story of <laughs> Jane Stanford. I am planning on hitting you with this. <laughs> I'm going to hit you hard, girl. With James Stan- about James Stanford? Jane. Jane. It's, it's a woman. It's a woman. Yeah. She's the founder of Stanford University. Oh, that's well, that would make sense, yeah. So Jane Elizabeth Lathrop was born August 25th, 1828. So she's a... Wait, what was the birthday again? <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't listening. Sorry, been, I'm so cozy. <laughs> August 25th. So she's a Virgo. Yeah. Mm. She was raised in Albany, New York. She was one of six or seven kids, and her parents worked as shopkeepers. Jane was highly educated, which was unusual for women of that era, obviously. When she was in her early 20s, she marries this dude, a local lawyer named Leland Stanford. They settled down in Port Washington, Wisconsin, where Leland ran and operated a law library. They only lived there for the first two years of their marriage, though. In 1852, Leland's library and various other properties were destroyed by a large fire, so he needed to completely start over in every way. So Jane went to Albany to stay with her family, and Leland decided to join his brothers, who were running a mercantile business in California because of the gold rush. Mm -hmm. They were making a lot of money, and he was like, okay, I want in on it. Business is booming. So he stayed out there in California, building as much wealth as possible for three years. Without his wife? Without his wife. All right. <laughs> Can without, you imagine? Without seeing each other? Yeah, because you can't just, this is the 1800s, you can't just oh. <laughs> easily travel to not, New York. You're not booking a Southwest flight for <laughs> 180? No, no. <laughs> All right. But can you imagine that you lose everything, and then your no. hubby's like, I'm going to go get, try to get rich. See you in a few years. No. I might be, I might be poor. I might be rich. <laughs> I have like a two week rule with boyfriends or like two weeks is, is this the max? Fair. But he did end up becoming very successful. And in 1855, he traveled back to Albany to pick up his boo. And then they officially settled in the Knob Hill area of San Francisco, California in 1856. Very nice. But really quick, can you picture like that pickup and like that ride home? You know, with someone that like you're married to, you love them enough to marry them and then you haven't seen them in three years. And like I get weird around a boyfriend I haven't seen for like a couple of weeks. And it's like, so what have you been up to? You know, <laughs> like how do you talk to someone after that much time? I have no idea. Awkward. 
Leland by then was operating multiple large scale mercantile businesses and he had become very rich and he was well connected in the upper echelon of San Francisco's society at that time Mm -hmm. when uh, Jane joined him. Mm -hmm. So he had like established established a lot by the time he brought her out. I feel weird being her going into that. I could see that being feeling weird. Yeah. Leland co-founded Central Pacific Railroad and operated as a president for that, as well as Southern Pacific Railroad for many years. Wow. He served as California governor for a short time in the 1860s and was a California senator for almost a decade. So they sort of went from rags to riches. They were a really wealthy and powerful couple who never had kids and they just enjoyed their life in high society, traveling the world and doing charitable work and stuff like that. But then, surprise, surprise to all, on May 14th, 1868, Jane was 39 years old when she gave birth to the couple's only child, a boy that they named Leland Jr. So they had a little Little miracle Taurus baby. And she was 38? 39. That's like my mom. Yeah, a little miracle Taurus baby. (laughs) A late Taurus. Leland Jr. was a happy surprise because, you know, they thought that they would never have kids. And while their lifestyles did not change whatsoever, their worlds now revolved completely around their little boy. They lived primarily in their massive 50-room estate in San Francisco. But then after having a baby, they decided to purchase a country home just outside the city. Just something like a little quaint. Were they? Where were they? In like Marin or something? I'm about to tell you. Oh, I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) The couple purchased over 8,000 acres of farmland in Palo Alto, California. Oh, wow. Which they decided to call the Palo Alto Farm. This was the location where the Stanford family made many of their happiest memories, and they spared no expense. They would travel the world just to collect art and decor for their farmhouse. (laughs) Said in quotes. (laughs) Yeah, farmhouse. And then being their little miracle baby, Leland Jr. was thoroughly spoiled. His parents had a real child-sized train track that they could sit in and ride around the property that spanned several hundred feet, like a little train station and stuff like that. So that's kind of cute. Yeah. Then tragically, in 1884, while on a family vacation in Florence, Italy, Leland Jr. actually died from typhoid fever. Oh, my God. He was only 15 years old. Jane and Leland Sr. were devastated to say the least and their way of coping was to throw themselves into the idea of memorializing their son in whatever way that they could so promptly after their son's death before they've even left to come back home Mm -hmm. jane and leland senior changed their wills they stated they wanted all of their estate to be left to a proposed institution located in palo alto after returning from europe with their son's remains they threw themselves into creating this institution They initially named it Leland Stanford Junior University, but today it's now known as simply Stanford University. They spent the next seven years turning their Palo Alto farm into what they hoped would become a world-renowned university. Stanford officially opened its doors to students on October 1st, 1891. Leland and Jane were obviously the founders, but they needed to hire a president to actually like run things. So they settled on a man named David Starr Jordan. Two years after the university's opening day, Leland Sr. dies, leaving Jane completely alone, not only in her private life, but also on her own in terms of keeping the university on track to reflect the values and vision that the Stanfords had had in mind when they created it. 
She was the president of the board of trustees, and she had a lot of power over the university. She had more power than anybody else. She advocated to keep the university open to female students and fought tooth and nail to fire this particular professor named Edward A. Ross. He was openly racist towards Chinese Americans and favored eugenics policies that targeted people of color. So Jane taking such a strong stance on those two positions in the 1800s and then unapologetically wielding the power that she had over the university to, you know, fire someone like that. She was definitely a badass, but definitely also made a lot of enemies. Enemies, Of course. (laughs) So as much as I love the fact that she's a total boss, Mm -hmm. I don't know that she actually knew what she was doing. Yeah. It's dangerous speaking up as a woman. (laughs) During the years that she was in control, the university had serious, serious financial problems and was even forced to close temporarily until they could rectify it. The Stanford's personal estate was valued at today's equivalent of roughly half a billion dollars. But it seems as though they were in a lot of debt. So Jane herself wasn't actually in a position to come to the university's rescue. So she did things like she would sell personal jewels and art, things like that, that she owned to try to fundraise. Okay. So in January of 1905, Jane was alone in her bedroom in her Knob Hill estate when she took a sip of water. But after swallowing it, she said it tasted so bitter that she ran to the bathroom and vomited Her personal secretary, um, a woman named Bertha Berner, and Jane's primary maid, a woman named Elizabeth Richmond, both took small sips and they all agreed it did taste bitter. So Jane had the water carefully preserved and sent away to be tested. And a few weeks later, the results came back stating the water had been laced with strychnine or strychnine. Strychnine. Strychnine poisoning. I don't know if it's strychnine or strychnine. Strychnine. Okay, strychnine. Yes. Strychnine. Is I don't a, know why I know this. Is a, <laughs> just kidding. Strychnine is a colorless, odorless poison most commonly used at that time as a pesticide for killing vermin and such. When ingested, it causes severe muscle cramps and spasms and eventually kills through asphyxiation. Oh, it's awful. So Jane loses her shit. Yeah. She immediately fires her maid Elizabeth because she is the person who put the water in Jane's bedroom. And Jane ended up hiring a private detective firm to investigate, but despite extensive efforts over the course of several weeks, they couldn't come up with any evidence pointing to any specific person that maid included. And didn't the maid sip it herself? Yes. So like knowing that it's poison, you know, that would be... So not coming up with a specific person left Jane thoroughly pissed off. And and paranoid, most likely. Complete, both, both. She was, was so upset. I mean, someone tried to kill her in her own home. So she leaves San Francisco and vows to start a new life far away. Jane is never going to come back to California. So she settles down on the island of Oahu. Smart. (laughs) She's planning on staying there for a while before continuing on to Japan. She stays at one of the first luxury resorts on Waikiki Beach, the Moana Hotel. Mm. This place had originally been used for Hawaiian royalty. So Jane was like, this is perfect for me because I'm a rich lady. The shoe fits. Yeah. (laughs) On February 28th, 1905, only two weeks into her Hawaiian stay. And then that means it's a little bit over a month after the first attempt at poisoning. Jane's come down with a bad cold and she's bedridden. Several of her staff were staying in the room surrounding her suite, including her secretary, Bertha. She asks Bertha to bring her a glass of water with a little bit of baking soda mixed in. Apparently this was like a normal concoction Jane would regularly drink to settle her tummy. 
Baking soda? A little, just a little bit of baking soda, like a okay. teaspoon. So Bertha mixes it, Jane drinks it, and lays back down, and Bertha goes back to her room. And then moments later, Jane is yelling for help. Her staff runs in and finds her convulsing in pain, gasping for air, and she collapses in the doorway. So they call the hotel physician. The doctor tried giving her some type of like uh, mixture to induce vomiting, but it didn't work. Jane's body contorted in the most unnatural ways. Her feet turned inwards. <gasps> what? Her, what but do you her, mean? Exactly what I just said. They turned inwards. Her feet? Her feet like went towards each other. Oh, okay. Well, that's not where I was thinking it. I thought it was kind of like wet into itself. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. <laughs> no, her limbs didn't get sucked back into her body. <laughs> but her feet turned inward. So it's like if you turn your toes to like touch pigeon each toed. other, pigeon toed, kind of like that. Her feet went inwards like that while her legs went far apart. And then that's her horrific. hands were balled into fists. And just before her jaw clamped shut, she yelled, this is a horrible death to die. The doctor and a ton of other uh, medical staff had been called and they, uh, she was covered in medical staff trying to mm -hmm. save her. Everyone was frantically, frantically trying to help her. And horrifically, they all ended up just kind of watching her die because Helpless. there's nothing, there's something there's they nothing do. to do. So all the physicians, the hotel staff, her personal staff is just this crowd of people standing around helpless to do anything. So they essentially just watched her suffocate to death. It's traumatizing. So when news broke of her death, Stanford University President David Starr Jordan immediately set sail for Hawaii. And when he arrived, he promptly, like as soon as he arrives, mm -hmm. he announces to the press that Jane had died of heart failure. After all, she was 76, so this seemed totally plausible. But what the public did not know at the time was that her body hadn't even been examined yet. So the fact that anyone is making this statement. immediate statement yeah. makes no sense. But then when the medical examiner determined she was definitely killed by poisoning through examination and testing, there was just there was no denying it was in her system. And then obviously they tested the baking soda and it had been mixed in with the baking soda. Yeah. Uh, so despite all of this and all of the witnesses who testified to the manner in which she died, which was absolutely not symptomatic of a heart issue. No. David hired a doctor to publicly dispute the cause of death. And then when that didn't work, he started spreading rumors in the press about the authorities in Hawaii. He spread rumors that the Hawaiian islands were a primitive place with their residents being less civilized than those on the mainland. Therefore, authorities were not actually qualified to do their jobs. However, the historians who have spent years studying what they can about her death have all noted that all of the doctors, all of the medical examiners and toxicologists who were on her case were highly qualified and held in high esteem for their work in their respective fields. So David's derogatory rumors are just that much more transparent today. Yeah, of course. So in my mind, like it seems obvious that Bertha, Jane's That's trusted my, personal yes. secretary of 20 years, killed her because she was the only present for both. She, she was the only person present for both poisonings. And she was literally the person to mix Jane's final drink. 100%. But the investigation into her death revealed that the poison was actually mixed in with a baking soda bottle. And the bottle had been purchased in California and several people had come into contact with it prior to that drink. Okay. So Bertha may not have intentionally killed her. Of course. It turned out that Jane and David had been butting heads since she'd fired that one professor. 
and Jane was planning to fire David next. And so the rumors are that when David caught wind of that, he paid off Jane's staff to slip poison in her drink. And then when the cause of death was rumored to be poison, he went out of his way to cast doubt and do what he could to bury it. So history books have mainly glossed over the fact that she was confirmed to have died by poisoning. And it's often inaccurately noted that she died of heart failure in her old age. Mm -hmm. Someone got away with poisoning Jane Stanford. And given that it's been 116 years since she died, her case will likely never be solved. And that's my shorty about Jane Stanford and her mysterious death. I, for some reason, at the very end, I thought to myself, if I'm ever on Jeopardy or something or um, who wants to be a millionaire, for some reason, I thought that would be the question of like, the owner of Stanford, how did they pass? I don't know why that was like the memory. It's a great question. It literally just like flashed into my mind right now. And I'm like, don't forget this. Yeah. <laughs> By poisoning as if any of <laughs> as if any of this is going to happen. Because I know I'm going to go on a game show and I know this is going <laughs> to be a question. A question. <laughs> but in my weird brain, that's what just happened. That was really good. Very informative. Yeah, it was so interesting. It was very interesting. I never would have known yeah, any I, of this. I never knew that. It's like crazy. Like when you throw stories at me that I would never... Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Thanks, Ash. And you're welcome to our listeners. <laughs> yeah. So today is New Year's Eve. So we're not going to do this again until next year. That's crazy. Yeah. So happy holidays. Oh, wait. Until next. Oh, you're doing one of those next yeah. year things. In my head, I'm like, we have a few more episodes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go along with it. Oh, that's crazy. See you next year, Ash. <laughs> See you next year. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon patreon.com slash crime bar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Anna Katharina. See you next week.